0: VinePair's New York City headquarters. I mean, my apartment in Brooklyn, New York. I'm Adam Teeter uh,
1: from Jersey City. I'm Erica Ducey,
2: and from the satellite
0: campus in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair podcast. I really did want to say VinePair's New York City headquarters, even though we re- they're still closed. <laughs> it's just like. <laughs> I mean, it might as well be the headquarters Uh, at this point. No, because you know they're all that would also be Keith's office, and I mean, apartment, and Josh's, and Danielle's, and like you know Erica's. It would be everybody's. It's just it's it is crazy that this one room I'm sitting in in my house really does feel like it just has been taken over by VinePair, and it's uh, I think I think Naomi's getting really sick of (laughs) it. Um, but yeah, so really excited about today's topic. but, But first, obviously, as always. We got to shout out to the sponsors, right? So this week's podcast is brought to you by Wild Turkey 101. Wild Turkey 101 is the high proof bourbon ideal for enjoying classic cocktails how they were intended to be when they were invented. It's actually true. Aged longer for more character, and using the same recipe since 1942, Wild Turkey 101 adds flavor and body to the Old Fashioned. It's true when you when you do have an Old Fashioned with with you know a higher alcohol higher proof bourbon, it is better. The number one consumer cocktail, also true never compromise drink responsibly wild turkey kentucky straight bourbon whiskey 50.5 percent alcohol by volume 101 proof copyright 2020 campari america new york new york gotta love that legal language at the end (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i I do i like i like a wild turkey old-fashioned i like wild turkey in general i think wild turkey is pretty delicious bourbon
1: yeah it is good i agree
0: yeah we've been you guys have been running some some cool like
2: uh you know top 20 lists of of Whiskies and and turkey is one of those great like it's not that expensive but yeah it makes a great cocktail I, I it's not maybe the thing i would turn to absolutely first to just sip on its own but in a cocktail like an old fashion definitely delicious
0: turkey 101 yeah makes awesome cocktails so um speaking of drinks uh let's talk about what you guys are drinking this week zach
2: so uh in in tied into today's theme to some extent uh I've been drinking a lot of of a lot of craft beer but a specific uh brewery because mm-hmm. uh, you know it fits my uh it fits my not active lifestyle very well and that's uh, I interviewed uh, Bill Schufeld, who's the founder of athletic brewing, which is focused on non alcoholic beers and I've been drinking a lot of their um uh, it's called Freeway, uh, so like Double Hop IPA, and I gotta say, like I have tried a lot of non-alc beers um, running beverage programs. You end up buying and tasting them because at least I took that part of my job seriously. But uh, it's actually like pretty convincingly beer-like, and I find that they're like their hoppier styles are are more. Beer like, uh, I guess it's just that delivery of like the sort of bitterness and aromatics that I appreciate. So yeah, I've been drinking that. Uh, it fits into my like I need something that's more interesting to drink than water at three thirty. But I still have to deal with my son when he wakes up from his nap. Kind of part of my life. So I'm yeah, so, I'm so
0: interested. Like I'm, I have to say, you're now the second person who's told me you actually think it's good. Athletic, if you're listening, you can send it to myself and Erica because I'm super suspect. I've, like, listened to their ads on tons of other podcasts. I think – and what I've always thought is really interesting is they've never really advertised on um, alcohol podcasts. They, they Like, I see – I hear them a lot on, like, tech podcasts. Like, do you want to get up in the morning and be able to do your presentation? If so, drink athletic. And I've always wondered if it's any good. But Kat also says it's it's very good. Yeah. Um, So I actually feel like I need to try it now because you are now the second person who's like, yeah, like, for – it's not beer, but for – you know, a beer replacement, it's very good.
2: I would say or it's does, is beer. It beer. It's beer. It's just like you, what's interesting to me is like where I notice that it doesn't have the alcohol is like halfway through the beer where I'm like, I don't feel any of the buzz. Like there's no because right. you know if I'm drinking a double IPA normally, you know that's seven, eight, nine percent alcohol a lot of times. And by the time I'm halfway through a can or something, I'm like, yeah, I can kind of feel it. Yeah, and, and so it's sort of like this weird like I don't necessarily mind. It's kind of nice to have the beer and not have the effect. But it is true that as we talk about on this podcast a lot, like we do drink alcohol for the effect, and so. I'm not like giving up alcohol, but it, but it is a nice kind of like, yeah, it gives me something more interesting to drink than water or, you know, you uh, something along those lines. If I'm not ready for yet more coffee, um, you know, it's a nice kind of alternative in the afternoon. Um, I don't drink it like, you know, all every day, all day, but, but it's, it's a nice alternative.
1: Nice. Yeah, so for me, I uh, was really excited yesterday to be on the phone with Heather Green, who's the CEO and master blender of Millum and Green Whiskey. She uh, is based out of Texas, but they are now working um, with a master distiller on their team, Marlene Holmes, who was at Jim Beam for her entire career and Man, this whiskey, uh, they just nationally released last night. It's the Milliman Green Triple Cask Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Um, fantastic. I was totally blown away. And it's so cool to see a woman owned and led whiskey company doing such great work. Um, you know, they're a young company, so they are sourcing some of their own juice, but they're also distilling in Texas and Kentucky, as well as you know, the finishing other whiskeys. So um, I tried this, it was so smooth, the 94 proof spirit. Um, and it just it had such kind of presence and depth to the character i was totally floored
0: so it's interesting i actually there's nothing specific i'm not as like that i'm super excited about this week like i was with the negronis um i will say uh that you know over the past week i've I've drunk a few things one is i did go back to um just like the heaven hill bourbon the seven-year-old which was pretty delicious like overproof and i had that um last night while watching the debate um and cheering on the fly did you drink the whole no. bottle <laughs> no honestly it was i think this debate was like basically what's what they're supposed to be right which is normal except that you know one of the candidates lied a lot or innovated questions but besides that like it was it was a pretty standard debate so it did there wasn't like as much of a desire for me to feel like i needed to you know just like down an entire <laughs> bottle of bourbon also i think I'd, I'd not feel great afterwards um you know <laughs> yeah. what i'm saying uh and then and then last weekend Gosh, it's so weird that all like the Corona like blends together. I will say I actually had a terrible bottle of wine. I'm not going to name the producer, oh, but no. I will say I want to, I want to talk about what happened and I want to get your opinion. So, uh, so we were at one of my favorite restaurants. So again, don't want to talk about them because I think the food is amazing. I think this was the server's fault, uh, but it was Naomi's birthday. And so like, we haven't been going out, but we were like, it's your birthday. Like we're going to go out for dinner. We had outdoor seats all this stuff. And I knew that this one wa- this restaurant had, you know, lost their wine person a long time ago actually. And that basically it's it's like a hodgepodge of people buying the wines, like the chef buys some, manager etc. And I know because of where we are in Brooklyn, it's been leaning very dirty natural. Not just like natural, dirty natural. And so there were two wines we were looking at. Naomi said she really wanted like a, you know, a, a red, but not a, not a bigger red, but something that had to use some nice acidity, et cetera. Something that would go really well with, you know, all the food. And so, and it was like, it's Mediterranean. So basically, um, there was like this Pinot Noir from Baden that I was like, this, this can't, no. And so I asked them about that bottle and they were like, oh, it's like really funky, really like, you know, just totally grungy dirt. And we were like, okay, no. We're like, how about this Nero d'Avila? And she was like, "Oh, this is perfect. It's like classic Nero d'Avola. You know, it it's like one of our you know best selling bottles. It pairs perfectly with all the food, whatever." I'm like, "Okay, cool." So she basically described the wine as being con- you know regular, not classic, right yeah. classic. So the bottle comes out, and she pours me a taste, and I literally look at Naomi and mouth to her. If I didn't know this was natural, I would say that it it there was something wrong with it, because it of course was natural, and it was the dirtiest like just riddled with faults and it was totally unpleasant to drink (laughs) but it was like at this point we were just like whatever screw it (laughs) i don't know what else to do and so we drank it and it was just not fun because it was like it it, the the faults were so clear and it was like so off-putting that it kind of ruined that part of the meal right like and there were other parts that were great. Like we'd had a really nice pet, not actually, you know, glass prior that was delicious. That was a way to like toast her birthday. But it was just kind of, I was like, you know, whose misunderstanding was it here? And I didn't want to get into it with her and say like, hey, like you basically made this sound like this was a totally conventional bottle of wine. But this is actually like very dirty and natty and not a good way because there are natural wines that I do like. But this is definitely not one of them, and so that's why we just drank it. But I like didn't know how to handle the situation, and we were just kind of like, okay, I guess like this is we're just gonna take one for the team,
1: yeah, and
0: drink the wine and like just remember. And of course, then we looked at the import on the back, and it was like some importer we had never heard of before, based in Bushwick. <laughs> so we were like, okay, this oh. makes a lot of sense. That's
1: that's a challenge. I mean. Uh- Zach, from the professional perspective of someone who's worked on the floor a lot, like, what would you have recommended doing here?
2: Oh, my God. This whole story made, like, almost made me break out in hives. <laughs> I mean, I think, look, it, I understand, Adam, your, your sort of general approach of, like, take one for the team. A few things as a, like, wine director sommelier make me sadder than hearing customers talk that way because, like... You should not, especially like you're out celebrating your wife's birthday. Obviously, in these times, most of people are not going out all the time. Like, you, if I mean, I would have loved for you to have said, you know what, this is not what we're looking for. And again, you know, restaurants are different and, and there are different approaches to this from a, from a, you know, again, from a sort of restaurant side, whether you just graciously, as I would take that bottle back and say, Hey, we get it. You know, we're sorry. Let's try and find you something else. I mean, I think, you know, I don't, uh, it's hard for me because I didn't, I never ran a program where a lot of the wines we were selling were faulted. So I'm not really like yeah. familiar with how you kind of convince someone that a wine that's flawed is good. Um, you know, I just tried to sell good wine. Um, and obviously that's a, still a subjective thing and different people have different tastes, but, but you know, if, if a wine had an obvious fault and, and we opened it, it was of course coming back. Cause I was, sending it back to the distributor um and so you know trying to kind of uh walk a line there I, i guess what i would say is that like you know yeah maybe the server's not super knowledgeable but you know what in the end if they're recommending food to you and and it sucks they say you say oh you know we don't want anything spicy and they bring out something that's loaded with spice like That's not your fault. You don't take that one for the team. You don't have an incredibly unpleasant dining experience because like they did a shitty job. Like, no, you tell them, look, this is like, you know, super spicy. We don't want it. We want, you know, something mild or vice versa. I guess if you want something super spicy and they bring out something bland as hell, like that's not your fault. That's the, that's the, the server's fault and the restaurant's fault. And they should be able to communicate to you basics about the wine program. And if you say, Hey, we don't want a funky, like dirty wine. Either they can say, well, unfortunately, we don't have anything that meets your needs, and you can decide what you want to do then, or they can bring you a wine that isn't funky and dirty. And I I guess I would just say, like, you know, they failed. um, And I totally understand not wanting to be the person who's like, excuse me. But all you listening out there, be the person who says, excuse me. Like, restaurants want you to leave happy, not. Go on their po- your podcast the next week and bitch about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, I, there was there was just so much there. Like, you know, there's also like the – we've talked about this before. But us realizing what a privilege it is to be dining out and us also thinking about like the server and how she may not want to be there and but she is. And there was just like all of this and I was just like I'm not going to be the person that does this right now. But yeah. it just – yeah, it sucked. And it was yeah. – it's, fu- it's just – it's crazy because – I get that there is like that that movement, and now there also is this weird thing where it's like, what can you trust? Because if it says Nero D'Avola now, and it's you know from the area where I know it's going to usually be very good in Sicily, I'm, I was going to assume it was what I thought we would like. And when she said it was typical, so then I'm like, well, then do you actually know as the server what typical Nero D'Avola tastes <laughs> like, or have you only tasted? i no. You've only tasted natural, you know, very natty ones, probably at this restaurant, which also then becomes hard because then you like who what, what is the word typical i would say the word typical is what the majority of people would agree is what the grape tastes like not what like a few people at some super hipster places think the grape tastes like um so it was kind of a it was a bummer yeah because even like and naomi like likes to tease that she's the one in our relationship that like loves the natural wines more than i do and she was even like uh-uh she was like this just tastes like something's bad
2: yeah. And in the end, right, like that's the problem, right? You should not. That should not be your experience walking away from a, a drink or a meal, being like, "This was right. bad." Like that's that's hopefully not what anyone's aiming.
0: Totally. For. So that sucks. Anyways, guys, I guess that I mean unless we have more banter to t- to to chat about, I felt like that got our, our banter out of the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the state of craft beer because I think you know it's craft beer month uh, at VinePair. Uh, we've devoted a large amount of our content for the month of October to the world of craft American craft beer, uh, which has been a very exciting, you know, world of beverage for quite a long time now, at least the last two decades. But within the last decade, you know, you know, prior to you know 2020, it was really a massive boom time, right? You know, every year was, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of new craft breweries opening across the country. Um but it seems like out of all three of the areas of alcohol, the one that's being the most impacted by COVID is craft beer. Um, and it also seems like all of a sudden, maybe there's a little bit less interest in craft beer than there used to be. So I thought, you know, we thought it'd be fun if we kind of just chatted about this, this area and sort of what we think is really happening in craft beer right now and what's exciting and maybe what needs a little bit of a jolt to become more exciting.
1: Yeah. Um I mean from my perspective I will be the first to say that craft beer or any beer is not my area of expertise. So where I can help this conversation <laughs> is with some statistics. Would you like yes, to Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. All right. So according to the IWSR craft beer is down 12 to 15% overall for the first half of this year. So, you know, that is largely because of the lengthy on premise closures and capacity restrictions. So, when you think about the different categories, um, Craft beer, especially, is focused on on-premise. So, uh, Brett Bart Watson, the chief economist for the Brewers Association, he says that on-premise sales account for about forty-five percent of craft beer volume before COVID nineteen. So, you know, about half. And without that channel, we are seeing the off-premise sales up between eleven and sixteen percent according to Nielsen data during the COVID affected period, but that doesn't cancel out the widespread losses from sales at bars and restaurants. So, you know, that's kind of the, the bigger picture that we're looking at here. And there's been a lot of challenges for craft brewers who are looking to pivot into canning when they've pre- previously been doing kegs, for example. Um, it's tough operationally if you're not set up for a high volume of canning. You may have to rely on mobile canning. Uh, mobile canning lines may only be available in a higher density areas, not as much in rural areas. There's been this ongoing aluminum can shortage um, and that existed before the pandemic. But COVID has exacerbated that because of the growing demand for aluminum cans, not just in beer, but also in wine, canned cocktails, et cetera. So those are some of the challenges that craft beer brewers are facing right now.
2: I think the other thing that goes along with what you're saying, Erica, is, you know, for a lot of craft breweries, especially ones on the like very, very small, the sort of nano scale, all the way up to kind of medium sized craft breweries, so much of their profit not necessarily gross revenue but profit comes from a tap room and most of the places in the country at best you're able to offer limited capacity either your tap room was closed for some amount of time still closed you can have out some limited outdoor seating but maybe not nearly as much as what you had had before and you know every brewer that I talk to every every brewery owner that I've talked to uh, in this period of time points to you know this very real fact that that the smaller you are the more dependent you are on on that, you know, often one location where you're doing a huge, uh, you're generating a whole lot of your revenue. And if that's not, you know, if it's closed, or even, you know, limited, and again, you know, maybe people have been okay through this warmer months, and as most of the country heads into fall, winter, and outdoor seating is a lot more complicated, if it's even an option, you know, again, a lot of them are looking at real challenges to to sort of, you know, the, that central piece of their of their uh you know model and and along with that i think is this other real central conceit to craft brewing which is you know for so long the selling point for craft beer along with you know of course the quality of the product was the sort of convivial nature of beer you know we think of beer as this hyper social beverage you know even maybe more so than wine or spirits totally. and whether it's in a brewery at a beer bar at a tailgate you know all these ways of getting together and enjoying beer are, again, greatly curtailed for most of us, if not completely off limits. And beer may just have a harder time fitting into the existing models for consumption that we have, especially if it's, you know, smaller scale and not readily available at the grocery store or online or whatever. And so, you know, I think, you know, obviously, you know, and you can, you guys can listen to some of the interviews we had and and have coming up on the sort of next round uh, part of this feed. But, you know, there's lots of interesting things going on where brewers are doing, you know, are are experimenting with ways to continue to keep that connection with their customers alive. But, but it's more challenging, I think, for beer than
0: anyone else. So I think, so this is interesting that some of the points you're raising, Zach, uh, sort of, I think, reinforce this theory that I have. It's a hot take.
1: (laughs) Um,
0: And this hot take I have is that I think the biggest trend in craft beer of the past four to five years is the reason craft beer is suffering now. And that trend is the hazy, the freshy, because for those beers, which are so amazing, freshness is key and limited supply is key. And so when you build a brewery that initially – is all built, and you build a, a, a an entire line that's all built not on distribution to grocery stores, which is where all of us wound up in the pandemic, right? Where we where we re-encountered like Lagonitas, which some of us hadn't drunk in decades, right? Or we re-encountered Bear Repub- Bear Flag, or some of these other like, you know, OG craft breweries. Um, and you relied on line culture, right? So people who would be willing on a Saturday or Sunday morning to come and line up at the brewery and wait for the beer and then have that community that we talked about, right? And you relied on really being very, very vigilant when it came to shelf control, right? And that's why a lot of retailers never wanted to stock some of these beers because a lot of the breweries were actually like really hard on the distributor who was really hard on the retailer. Be like, if this doesn't move, it's got to get tossed, right? So it it means that when a pandemic happens, people aren't willing to wait in line and you're not set up to to know how to do delivery because you haven't had to do that in the past and things like that. I think a lot of breweries fell behind because they became known for this style of beer that is absolutely delicious. And like, I mean, Kat jokes and says that I'm a haze bro. I mean, I love hazy beers. I think they're delicious. Um, but it, they they have been harder to find. And in the pandemic, like, you know, I think there was at least the first two to three months, the grocery store that I went to had none of them besides Threes and Threes is one of the exceptions. I mean, they are, I mean, to shout out to them, they their infrastructure and the way that they do their business in New York City, a lot of people could learn from. Um, and the way that they they handle getting the beer still into into all the, the larger retailers, I think is, is pretty unique. Um, but I think for the most part, like all those other breweries had a very hard time. And now the opposite has happened, right? Which is now they've all flooded retail like you know we we talked about the the beers that we've all sort of enjoyed during the pandemic and and josh was saying he's gotten to drink beers that he never would have gotten to be able to just walk down to the the corner bodega and buy because he would have had to go to the brewery to get it and now they're just they are so desperate to get it into retail and they're on a lot of them are kind of also being a little bit less vigilant about those born on dates right they're not they're not as worried anymore that the beer has to be consumed within a week of canning which is what a lot of people used to think, right? That was that—that that was the whole allure of the fresh, hazy IPA. If it—if it wasn't fresh, that haze kind of diminished. It kind of fell out of the beer. It—it it, it didn't have and the, the mouth, the pillowy mouthfeel that everyone was obsessed with, and the—and the sweet, not the sweetness, but you know, the fruitiness, all that stuff that was what made that beer so mind altering to so many people who had drunk craft beer for so long. Um, so that's my first hot take. And my other hot take is I think the other thing that happened to craft breweries is like a lot of them got into seltzer and uh, you know, white claw and truly kicked their asses. I mean, you know, that that those were just again, it's 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 a supply issue. And like if half of your, you know, a lot of craft breweries started making seltzer as a way to, you know, when the breweries were packed, be have something else on tap that they could serve to people who didn't want. A ton of these massively high alcohol beers we talked about at the beginning, right? How many double IPAs can you drink? Um, but now that we're in a pandemic, like, White Clon truly are everywhere. And this obscure hard seltzer that probably wasn't that much of a focus for the brewery, but helped pay the bills when they were open, like, is not going to be the thing that people reach for. So I think, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's those things combined with everything else you're saying, right? That it's just, it's just hard, harder for them than for almost anyone else. And no one has figured out really how to create this beer that took the, the beer world by storm as, as a shelf stable product yet. Hazy little thing really isn't that, you know, Sierra Nevada says it is, it's not the question is, is this new dogfish beer that just got announced, which is going to have like oat milk in it. So it's mm. gonna have the odiness that's gonna actually make it hazy. Is that gonna be it? Because th- that's the only way you're gonna recreate these beers without relying on freshness. Is there's gonna to have to be something else chemical that happens that makes them that hazy and that pillowy and that like uh, what I refer to as like it looks like you know what eggs look like before you when you add milk to them before and you and you whip them before you scramble them. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting. Uh, I, I think I think it's it's going to be tough because that style of beer is what really propelled. I mean, it's what made other half famous. It's what made Grimm famous. It's what made. I mean, I'm talking New York breweries, but like lots of those. I mean, I remember Erica when we had the the staff picnic and um, and I was talking to Jono, your husband, and uh, and he mentioned you know one of the OGs of that movement. You know, like that, those are the, the beers. Now I can't remember which one it was, but it was one of the ones that I was like, was either a sip of sunshine or something?
1: Yeah, I can't and remember. I was,
0: and I was like, yeah. I mean, like, those are the beers that everyone was excited about. Yeah. You know, well,
1: what about I feel like the thing I see more than anything is like fruited sours and like just fruit, like just fruit beer everywhere. I mean, is that I don't know how fresh those have to be, though. Like, I'm thinking of like, like the Dogfish Head Sea Quench and like all those sorts of beers that have like that really like pronounced fruitiness to them. Um, what do those beers have to be as fresh? Like, what's the situation there?
0: Not that I know of, but I mean, I would, I'm curious what Zach thinks here, but I think that, I think sours are polarizing. Like, I think what was so interesting about the haze was that they're incredibly welcoming to almost anyone who's interested. Like, it tastes like fucking orange juice. Yeah. You know, like, and that's why I think, I mean, I've always been a big, bitter IPA fan. I, I used to think like Racer 5, Bear Republic was is like one of my, my top beers. Me too. Um, Be I love that. The day. That beer is amazing. Right. Also, you know, like, uh bell's two-hearted is an amazing beer but that's like the that was a very those that style of ipa was like for people who liked bitter like i could never get naomi to drink ipas but she loves hazies and so i i think that sours the same like i naomi loves sours i can't like i'm gonna give you guys a little tmi but like i have like massive acid reflux <laughs> like I <can't>, that's also <laughs> why i don't like natural wine like i can't yeah. do it like it just the The Brett inside those beers, I just, I can have one, but I couldn't, I could never think that I'd go and invest in a six pack, but I don't know exactly what do you think?
2: Well, so I think that it's really interesting that we're talking about the sort of freshness of beers, because I think for in general, that's something that that even outside of, you know, hazies and, and beers where the, the freshness are like right now here, especially in the Pacific Northwest, we're in the midst of fresh hop season. And those beers are like, again, yep. another thing where, where, you know, you need like, you know, you want that beer kind of you know, literally, you know, uh, fresh from the, the tank, if possible. And if not that, then, you know, in the can for as little time as possible. but But all beer pretty much with the exception of maybe some like darker beers that are designed to age, almost all beer benefits from being consumed, you know, pretty fresh. You totally. know, it's not a product. And so I think, you know, one thing that we're just seeing is that like, you know, breweries of all scale, but especially on the craft side are really, you know, trying to figure out how to get product in people's hands. You know, like they're, they're not, they're not designed in the for the most part for the you're not gonna go buy a twenty-four pack of your favorite craft beer. No. Like for one, you probably don't want to drink the same one of those every day for or two of them a day for twelve days or whatever. But also like the, the beer just doesn't isn't as enjoyable at the end of that. So so one of the challenges that I think that that um, that craft brewing has had is just this sort of compulsion that people had especially earlier in the pandemic of like I got to get as much of everything as I can, right? Like I got to pack my house, my my apartment whatever with everything that I could possibly need. I, and I think people have come out of that phase a little bit but but still, you know, there's that challenge of if you're only going to the store once a week or you're or you're going, you know, you're going to go to a brewery to stock up but you're you're not going to go every you know, week, you're going to go once a month or every two months or something, you know, you kind of have to find this balance of what is what is going to be shelf stable enough to last through that period. I also think with like the sours and things like that, The other problem for beers like that is like we are we are seeing a shifting, and again, this is where I come back to the like closures or limitations on tap rooms, where where the the context for drinking these beverages is is different. And so, one of the reasons why I think the hazy has become so popular, not just because of what Adam said, or maybe in conjunction with what Adam said about how welcoming it is, is it's also a great beer to just drink by itself, right? Yes, it is. Like it is a complete thing unto itself, and and whereas like to me a sour whether it's fruited or otherwise like that's a beer to have like i need to eat something with that like same way that like a high acid wine like i don't really want to drink those things i don't have the same issues with acid reflux but but but, but still i don't want to drink a really high acid anything without something to go along with it. And so, you know, those higher acid beverages, like I think are more shelf stable, I would bet just chemically that it has to be, you know, part of the problem for something like a hazy is you don't have that sort of acid balance to kind of keep the thing fresh. It just kind of, it's like, you know, milk is going to go bad faster than lemonade, like just the reality of it. And so- you like you you have to have uh, so so but if it's hours and things like that are, are maybe something that people could could re, re you know, re um, revisit if they haven't done it in a while, because for those of us who are consuming at home, maybe thinking about having beer with food, like those are those are that's where those drinks shine their, their their brightest, is is in that context where you can use a meal or a snack or something to kind of balance them out. Whereas like I think a hazy or something like that, like man, you can just crush that watching Netflix or whatever you want. Like it doesn't need anything else to make it enjoyable. And so I don't know that I would say that like necessarily um, I'm going to like go back to or I'm going to necessarily want to go back to um, to some of the beers that I used to drink as much. But that is where I think things like really bitter IPAs, sours, et cetera, those more extreme ends can be more could, – could perhaps come back into a little bit of prominence because I think they're both more shelf-stable and they're also more uh, more enjoyable in the setting that most of us are consuming things, i.e. at home with whether it's a meal or our snacks or whatever on hand.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that this state of craft beer is kind of like really in flux right now because – I really feel like, you know, even 2 or 3 years ago, like it was the shit maybe even a year ago. I mean, it was the area of of alcohol that in a lot people a lot of people would have said was the most exciting. Still, right there was there it was it was, you know, it was becoming it was working on becoming more open. It it still was predominantly, you know, beer bros, but it was working on becoming more open. Uh, there was an accessibility, at least when it came to people who were drinking that it felt like you would get into it more easily than, than other areas of, of the drinks world. You know, the branding was always really interesting. Um, you know, a lot of people, I, you know, I've always talked to think that nat- like a lot of those natural wine labels were influenced by craft beer. Um, and a lot of wine people like wanting to have their kind of like cool craft beer area of the wine world. Um, but it just, I think everything we've said here is just true that the the business model because it really is the third space you know that's the great right it just like right like the taproom yeah it's just suffering more than any other area of alcohol like i can't think of like i love craft cocktail bars and i love you know but those aren't to me a third space you don't you don't I can't sit at a craft cocktail bar and pay $15 a drink for very long. Whereas you can sit at a, you know, a brewery all day and have, you know, six to $8 pints and and have a great time. And usually there's a food truck and whatever. And same for wine bars. Like I know there's a lot of them, but like, are they ever really been a place that you're like going to just hang out with your buddies and catch up and stuff in the same way? Probably not. And wine to me has always been much more of a, you know, restaurant thing or an at home thing, which is what I drink most often when I'm home. Um, I think that's what it is and it's it's sad because I think it's gonna it's gonna take longer for it to come back than the others and I mean it will but it's just gonna it's just not gonna be as quick I think as as everything else
1: I, I- I'll just put in one little fact here, which I found interesting, which was, um, so as of June 30th, there were uh, 8,217 active craft breweries uh, in the US. So that was up 100 from a year ago. Um, And, you know, it it does, it takes a lot of time to open a brewery. So uh, several years. So like, you know, people are still opening. But what what I found interesting was that between uh, Q2 and Q3 of this year, there were still 219 new applications applications to the brewery permit applications. Um, and that's that's the slowest amount of growth in 11 quarters, but it's still growing. So I think people still see craft beer as a a possible area where they can make money, or maybe it's all the people in finance who've been like, screw it. (laughs) Like this, that like, I'm done here and I'm just going to go open a brewery.
2: I will say my, my one bit of silver lining for this whole conversation is that you've seen a lot of, uh, sort of, a lot of statistics that home brewing has taken off again in a big way during the totally. pandemic and I do think that one kind of cool possibility coming out of this is that you will have had a lot of people who are maybe you know uh, either had more time to devote to home brewing or took it up for the first time and and I mean again home brewing is where the craft beer movement was born it's how it still mostly gets its start many 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 people who start breweries start out by brewing at home it's a very hard you know it's very it's relatively easy to do that i mean adam you have personal experience mm-hmm. and um and like i think in general it's certainly possible that you know when we're talking to brewers 5 or 10 years from now and ask them how they got started a lot of them probably will say you know what during covid i decided you know what? i'm going to take the plunge i'm going to try home brewing i'm going to you know you know give it a shot and and from that uh, opportunity i suppose this opportunity maybe some of the great breweries of the 2020s will be born that's actually really that's true.
1: Great. Yeah, that's
0: like actually that. really true. I'm I'm not gonna open a sourdough bakery, but I could. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, and seriously, and I, I mean, Erica, I'll let you plug it. We got a great home brewing column, guys.
1: Yeah, we do. Uh, I, I mean, it's a really wonderful column. Um, if you haven't checked out it, it's called DIY uh, Brewer Yourself, and uh, Mandy Na- Naglich, I think is that how you say her mm-hmm. name? Yep. She um, is a pro brewer, um, home brewer, and. Uh, it's it's a really highly read column. So people seem to be engaged. It's been growing during the pandemic. So I think there's a lot of interest in people saying, saying like, I've graduated from sourdough. Let me try home brewing.
0: Yeah. And she just, she even has like a, a one column where she writes about how to make a hazy, which I thought was really interesting. it's like, wow, you're actually gonna teach me how to do that. I, I never, when I was brewing, would have even thought I could have attempted that. But I mean, I think it shows people are willing to, to try these things. So I think, you, I think you're very much gonna be right there, Zach. I think we're gonna have a lot of people, you know, a lot of breweries that open up and when you ask why they're going to say we started you know we left this we left whatever city we lived in probably even in like smaller towns right we left the city we lived in we moved to this place we got more space we started home brewing and we realized like oh this will be a this will be a nice life and they open breweries i can totally see that
1: yeah me too
0: well guys this has been another amazing conversation as always um you know i just i think every every time we sort of talk this stuff out we go into it thinking like okay you know is this going to be something that's just going to be all doom and gloom, and then and then I feel like I come out and I feel really positive about everything. So <laughs> thank you guys very much. Aww, yeah, silver Just here to just here to brighten your day. Thanks, guys. Well, uh, for everyone listening, we're here to brighten your day as well, which is why we'd love you to leave us an a review, uh, tell your friends a rating on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It definitely helps other people discover the show. Erica, Zach, I'll see you right back here next week. Talk to you then. Sounds great. And before we officially go. A word from our sponsor of this week's podcast, Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey 101 is the high-proof bourbon ideal for enjoying classic cocktails, how they were intended to be when they were invented. Aged longer for more character and using the same recipe since 1942, Wild Turkey 101 adds flavor and body to the old-fashioned, the number one consumer cocktail. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, 50.5% alcohol. by volume, 101 proof. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Thanks so much for listening to the VinePair Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now, for the credits. VinePair Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patri and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the VinePair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.